Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, the host of the channel. Today we're talking to Ian Black about his new book, Enemies and Neighbors, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017. The book offers a comprehensive view of the past and present of what would ultimately become known as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Drawing on a range of sources, the book aims to offer a balanced and clear narrative of a history that has become infamously contested. Ian Black, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. Can we maybe start by ask, uh, by asking you to explain what brought you to write such a history in the first place? Can you tell us something about the background of this work, both in personal and professional terms? Sure. Well, I. It, it's funny, you look back from a certain age and you have to ponder your life. But So it turns out when I do that, that I spend a good deal of my uh, my adult life dealing with this issue one way or another. I was um, I was a student at uh, Cambridge in the early 1970s, and I visited Israel once. And of course, the time that period was one of, I think, fair to say, increasing uh, attention was paid to the the uh, Israeli-Arab conflict. Uh, it was a time of great turmoil in the region. I was studying history. Uh, and I began to notice things that I thought were really fascinating, particularly the uh, the way in which the uh, accounts of key moments from either side, from the Israeli side, the Arab side, the Palestinian side, could be really, really very different. Even a single event, for example, something that took place during the War of 1948, uh, the, the 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 different versions of it were were so different as to be really irreconcilable. And when I graduated from uh, from Cambridge, I decided it was quite easy to do in those days. I had a reasonable degree uh, to carry on doing uh, further research for a, a doctorate. I went to the London School of Economics, where uh, my supervisor was uh, the uh, celebrated historian Eli Kaduri. 
And the topic of my thesis was, um, again, focusing already on that key question of uh, Jewish-Arab relations. I looked at the policy of the Zionist movement towards what was called then the Arab question uh, during the period of the 1930s, and particularly the period of the uh, Arab rebellion from 1936 to 1939. It was an extremely important period, very formative, both in terms of the uh, what was happening on the ground, uh, the most significant period to date of uh, Arab resistance to the British and the Zionists, and of course also the, the very, very rapid growth of the Jewish population of Palestine, given what was happening uh, in Europe at the time. It's important to remember always, I think, when you look at the history, the changing demography, um, certainly the early period when the, the Jewish population of Palestine more than more than doubled during those uh, those years. So I did my doctoral research. I spent a lot of time in archives, mostly in, in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, Hovart, Haifa, and elsewhere, and also, also in London, at what was still called the Public Record Office. It's such a long time ago, it's now the National Archives. So I particularly looked at, um, at that. And of course, uh, the way that you do these things, it, it gave me a a strong interest in the subject, a degree of uh, expertise. And uh, uh, I went on in different ways, uh, mostly as a journalist rather than as an academic, to deal with the Israel-Palestine conflict for, gosh, for the next 40 years or so. And that was the background, really, to, to writing this book. I see. And uh, <clears throat> in in this field of so many contesting histories and narratives, uh, how did you uh, come about to writing this century of uh, of a conflict? Well, my motivation was 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 fairly straightforward. Um, I, I two or three years ago, in the run up to the centenary of the First World War, uh, I was just amazed to see how many books were being published on this subject. So there must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of books that were coming out to mark that centenary. And given my longstanding interest in uh, the Israel-Palestine issue, given the approach of 2017, the anniversary in particular of the Balfour Declaration, given that I'm, I live in, in London and I'm aware very much of the British role in this story, both past and, and present, it seemed to me that it made sense to try and write a, a, a book that would mark the centenary. And of course, 1917 uh, was a hugely important moment, but it is also very striking if you follow the history, how that from 1897 onwards with the foundation of the Zionist movement, the first Zionist Congress, more precisely, every, the seventh decade, the seventh year of every decade until the present day has been uh, marked by a hugely significant event uh, in the in this story, 1917, 1937, the Peel Commission, 1947, the UN Partition Resolution, 1967 needs no introduction, and so it goes on. And I've often said that I think that perhaps in future, uh, people who look back at the history of uh, this conflict will mark 2017, uh, not only as the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, but the year that Donald Trump became president of the United States and did things that many people consider to be uh, deeply unhelpful uh, in terms of trying to resolve it. 
Yes, so uh, so the book is structured chronologically as each of its 26 chapters covers a period of time. They're also titled by uh, a range of years. And this gives the reader a sense of what you just, re- uh, and just talked about, this relentlessness of this history. Do you see some of these periods or episodes or decades as more critical, so to speak, for understanding the history you are narrating? Are there more important periods than others? And clearly, there are moments which are absolutely uh, crucial in the development of the conflict. And again, most uh, most obviously, you would take the period of 1947-1948, the UN partition vote, the, the war, the Israel's independence, the Palestinians, what they call the Nakba, the, uh, the catastrophe. Obviously, that is a huge moment. But of course, nothing makes sense without understanding what happened uh, before. So yes, there are uh, periods of, 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 of high drama. Uh, one could say the same for the war of 1967, who's, of course, uh, half, whose jubilee, uh, whose 50 years we marked uh, just last summer. But again, everything is connected. It is a seamless web. You can't understand the significance of what happened in 1967 without knowing what happened uh, half a century uh, earlier. I, I, I like to give the example of uh, uh, to illuminate the link between past and present in the in the persona of uh, Sheikh Ezzedine Al Qassam, who was the first Palestinian. He was actually a Syrian by birth, but the first Palestin- in, in the pantheon of Palestinian heroism, Sheikh Ezzedine Al Qassam was the first to take up arms and use the concept of jihad to fight the British. Uh, and Zionism. He's buried just the other day. I was visiting uh, uh, Israel, and uh, his, he's buried uh, in a very, very um, neglected cemetery just outside uh, uh, Haifa, a place that used to be called Ballad of Sheikh and today is uh, Nesher. Why do I mention Sheikh Al uh, Qassam? Because he is the his name uh, has been given to the military wing of. Uh, Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, the rockets that they fire into Israel are called Qassam uh, rockets. I, I, I say this just to point to the connections between the present and the past. He is a revered figure. Most Israeli Jews, I think would be fair to say, have probably never heard of him, but they've certainly heard of the uh, rockets that uh, come from Gaza in periods of tension. Uh, so uh, the historical memory matters. Whether it's an accurate memory or not doesn't is less important than the fact that these symbols uh, play an important role. That the connections between past and present are really very strong, and the same is is true, of course, for the for the other side. They, there is a strong sense for both peoples of their own history, and anything that reinforces their version of the story, their narrative, uh, is 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 always important. And it comes to a head, of course. Uh, every year, very symbolically, on Israel's Independence Day, which marks for the Palestinians their Nakba, the loss of uh, what they saw as their land. I uh, remember personally when the Hamas uh, grew and uh, took the name of uh, Ezdin al-Qassam, that Israelis realized that there is an uh, Ezdin al-Qassam buried in, in Haifa, and it was a, a big surprise uh, to many of us. And this tells you a lot about how the relentlessness of this history tends to sometimes forget 
elements of it. So we are trapped in a present. I also heard you comment once that this centenary element of the Balfour Declaration, for example, should not be detached from other elements of uh, the history. Uh, how does a book of history tries to overcome the tendency to see everything through the lens of the present? Well, that's, that, that's a problem for all historians of all subjects, is it not? Um, I, it's, it's true that given that the highly contentious nature of this uh, conflict, uh, you have to be particularly careful. But I think it is, it seems to me that it is possible. I begin the book by describing the um, narratives of both sides. What is a narrative? A narrative is how people see their own story, how peoples see their own story. It's what their collective memory uh, consists of. Um, it seems to me that you can look at this story by saying from the start that it is, I think, virtually impossible to come up with an agreed version from both sides. Facts are one thing, and I think facts actually increasingly are quite easy to agree on. Uh, certainly with the passage of time, it becomes easier. But in terms of rights, in terms of the Jewish connection to the land of Israel, the Palestinian Arab view that the Jews in the form of the Zionist movement are intruders and they are linked to uh, colonialism and their intention is to supplant the natives and so on. Those two views cannot be uh, reconciled. But it does seem to me that it is perfectly possible to tell the story in a way that describes accurately what actually happened. I mean, for example, the uh, Deir Yassin is the famous, infamous massacre that took place uh, on the western outskirts of Jerusalem in April 1948. And it was a key moment in the fighting uh, that was taking place at that time and was an important trigger uh, of uh, Palestinian flight uh, at, uh, at a really, really important moment. Now, for many years, uh, the figure was quoted in every available source that I think 254 uh, people had been killed by the, uh, the Irgun and the uh, Lefi, the Stern Gang, and so on. And it, it really became a byword for on the Arab side for Zionist brutality, as they would put it. And on the, on the Jewish side, it was very much in the narrative of what are called the Porshim, the dissidents, the groups, the Ngun and the Stern Gang, who didn't accept national discipline and were not under the control of the Haganah, the mainstream militia movement. And a few years ago, assiduous research by Palestinian academics uh, revised that figure quite significantly. I think the figure was revised down to 107 victims. Very, very uh, thorough work involving Uh, questioning the relatives, combination of oral history and documentation that changed the picture of what happened. So the facts are agreed. I don't think those are in dispute anymore. Um, the significance of that remains as important as it was. And I think throughout the story of 100 years or more, and of course I write about more than 100 years, I go back to the, uh, to the 1880s when the first, uh, the first Zionist uh, settlements began. in Ottoman Palestine. Throughout that story, 
facts, I think, can be more or less agreed. There are some areas that can't, that can't be. For example, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but I'll give you one more example that I think is a, fa a fascinating one. So when Yasser Arafat uh, died in 2004, it was widely believed by uh, Palestinians that he had been somehow poisoned by the Israelis. He was at the time essentially a prisoner in his own headquarters in the Muqata'a in, uh, in Ramallah in the West Bank. It was the tail end of the Second Intifada, an extremely violent period. Uh, Ariel Sharon was Israel's prime minister, and Arafat was blamed by the Israelis for unleashing this wave of violence, which was the worst violence seen in the country since 1948. And they wanted to get rid of him. And there was a sense that the Americans under the, uh, the second Bush administration wanted to as well. And Palestinians believed that he had been poisoned by Israel and accused, uh, made that accusation openly. Israel denied it. Uh, investigations were held into his, his body was examined. Uh, the Russians were involved, the French were involved, and no evidence was found in the end that Arafat had been poisoned. Many Palestinians continue to believe that that was the case. I have no knowledge about that beyond what is in the public domain. Uh, I merely observe that one of those questions, uh, an important question about the history, is the subject of controversy and remains open. I would not be surprised if in the future uh, that issue is reopened and claims are made and even evidence is produced that uh, actually maybe there was something to that accusation. Politically, uh, it would have been logical. Morally, I leave that question uh, aside. But I think it's one of those issues that is likely to be revisited in future. But the facts are pretty much agreed, I think. But there is the issue of how you understand the facts. And it is quite clear to the reader that you are committed as a writer to telling a balanced narrative, one that doesn't really take sides in terms of the immediate politics of the conflict. Um, the question is, uh, can it be done and should it be done? Shouldn't you uh, adopt an ethical position, as some would argue, and um, mark the villain as the villain and mark the hero protagonist as the hero protagonist? I think that's too dichotomous a view, villains and heroes. Isn't, isn't life and isn't history more complicated than that? Uh, I think it is. Uh, adopting a moral position, I think that the... I, I mean, you're right, I should say, that my intention was to try and write the history of this conflict and to tell it of and from both sides. Now, whether I've succeeded in doing that, others must be the judge. That was my, uh, that was my, uh, my hope and my intention. Um, I like to think that by describing, as I have done, the narrative of each side, the view that each side has, I have set out how they saw it, and then I had described how the story unfolded. Um, I think that um, it is possible to do this without being too judgmental. I think it's clear that, uh, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate, um, uh, give, give, you a, give you an illustration of the answer. So, for example, 
um, it, it's quite clear that the issue of uh, Arab acceptance or Palestinian acceptance of the Zionist enterprise uh, is a very, very central issue from the very beginning, from even before the First World War, uh, when the uh, Arab natives of Palestine, and of course there were Jewish natives of Palestine as well, but when the Arab natives of Palestine uh, began to understand that the Zionist movement had uh, significant aspirations to set up some kind of entity of its own in their country, separate from them, not in the familiar framework of the Ottoman millet system of autonomous communities under the Sultan. When they understood that hostility to suspicion of and hostility to the Zionist enterprise became very much part of the Arab uh, mainstream, whether Muslim and majority Muslims or Christians. I think that's quite clear. I think it's also quite clear from the beginning, uh, from early on, that the Zionist movement, as it uh, sought to establish itself uh, in Palestine, particularly before, but particularly after the uh, the landmark of the Balfour Declaration, and having got the support of the then most powerful country in the world for its for its project, that the Zionist movement either ignored completely or played down to a a reckless degree the issue of Arab opposition to it. And that's a so I, I can make that judgment about both sides. I what I've tried to do is to document it. And I again, you know, others will have to judge. But I think it's clear from the beginning that there is a huge problem and that the conflict is not something that is artificial or about propaganda. It's about conflicting aspirations for the same small piece of land. Now, of course, these are generalizations, and on both sides there are uh, things happen and individuals embody uh, uh, hopes to do something uh, differently, whether it's the wing of the uh, Palestinian uh, national movement in the 1930s, the Arab opposition, as it's called, Mu'arada, the Nashashibis and so on, who are more willing to consider some kind of compromise uh, with the Jews, or whether in the in the in the Yishuv, in the Jewish community of Palestine, uh, you have people who uh, care more and work harder uh, to address the issue of uh, coexistence or relationships with the Arabs, whether it's Brit Shalom or uh, people like Yehuda Magnus and so on, or on the left, people like uh, in, uh, movements like Hashem El which took a, a position. Uh, which was different from the mainstream issue, and it talked about some kind of binational state. So there were people who did things differently, but the overwhelming uh, sense on both sides from the beginning, and this is well documented, uh, was that this was a confrontation which was going to be harsh. And in my view, and this perhaps is something that I would like to emphasize that I've done in my own book is that I think that this was simply inevitable from the start. There's a whole discourse in this subject, is there not, of missed opportunities. Did the Palestinians, there's the famous saying by Shimon Peres about the Palestinians never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. It's a very smart line, very clever. But actually, if you look in detail at the moments when purportedly opportunities were missed, 
not always as clear as that. It's interesting. I was interested to discover that when the Palestinian historians or Arab historians look at the British white paper of 1939, that was a hugely important moment in the development of this story because for the first time the British significantly retreated from what was held out in the promise of the Balfour Declaration limits to Jewish immigration. At a, of course, at a tragic moment in Jewish history, just as, uh, just as the shadow of the Holocaust was about, to, uh, was about to fall. But the Palestinian leadership rejected that. That is acknowledged by Palestinian historians themselves to have been a mistake. The same is not true for the equally, even more important moment of November 1947, when the UN General Assembly voted to partition Palestine into separate Jewish and Arab states. That is often described as the, the classic moment when the Palestinians made a fatal error. I think it was a fateful moment, but I also think, having looked in detail at what led up to that moment, I think it would have been extremely hard for them to have accepted that. They would have had to accept the presence in their, what they saw as their country, of a people who they saw as alien intruders, uh, and they couldn't bring themselves to do it. It, it. it was a crucial moment, but I'm not sure, I don't think that they could have done anything very different. Aim to be balanced, which is indeed very clear uh, in your book, is further highlighted by the fact that The very historiography of the conflict has been a matter of contestation. You are saying that the facts are clear, but how we narrate the facts has been, even inside the Israeli context, even inside the Zionist context, it has been a matter of contestation. Did you find yourself having to judge between alternative histories of the conflict? I don't think that there are any kind of coherent alternative histories, as you put it. I think there are arguments. Uh, there are arguments, for example, uh, part of the Israeli Zionist mainstream discourse has been that the issue, the point about the conflict is that the, the Arabs, the Palestinians will never accept a Jewish state, Jewish sovereignty in Palestine. I mean, that's, that's the clear view of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister. Um, so there are certainly elements of truth in that, but there are also events important events which contradict it. Uh, and the most important one in relatively recent history is the, uh, the absolutely key moment of the Oslo Agreement of 1993. In, in the Oslo Agreement of 1993, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and I spell out the word deliberately, the Palestine Liberation Organization recognized the state of Israel. That's a very, very significant moment. And what else happened? The State of Israel, under Yitzhak Rabin at the time, recognized the Palestine Liberation Organization as the representative of the Palestinian people. It did not recognize a state of Palestine. So, you know, you could only uh, refer to facts. Um, so the argument about Palestinians not accepting Israel Uh, has been significantly contradicted by 
an important bilateral agreement between the two sides. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't bind everybody, clearly. Hamas, the, again, I'll spell out the name, the Islamic Resistance Movement, in its Arabic acronym, uh, does not accept uh, the existence of the State of Israel, refuses to do so. It also still believes in, uh, in armed struggle in a way that the PLO formally does not. The PLO renounced terrorism when it agreed uh, um, agreed to the Oslo uh, the Oslo Accords back then, twenty five years ago. Now, uh, it's also true that when in the Israeli discourse there are complaints about the Palestinians not accepting a Jewish state, that usually ignores the fact that since uh, nineteen sixty seven the uh, Jewish population of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, has uh, grown exponentially. And indeed, it even doubled after the signing of the Oslo Agreement in 1993, which incidentally said nothing about the key question of settlements. So there are narratives on both sides, but there are also indisputable facts. And then the Arab perception, the Palestinian perception, uh, Israel has been bent on... Uh, expanding its presence in the what they refer to still, of course, as the as the occupied territories. Make no distinction, as Israel does, between West Jerusalem, uh, sorry, between East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Gaza is a different story, but in principle, of course, under international law, Israel remains responsible for the Gaza Strip, even though it pulled out its removed its settlements and its forces in in two thousand and five. So there are plenty of counter-arguments to challenge the narratives on both sides. And there are plenty of facts, too. Uh, so did writing the book bring you to understand the history of the Middle East in a new light? One of the things I wanted to do in my book was to, you know, it bears saying, Yaakov, this is fascinating to have this conversation. There's something that maybe I should have said at the beginning. And let me say it now in the context of the question that you ask. There is a vast literature on this subject. We both know that. Anybody who's interested in it knows that. There is a vast and ever-growing literature on this, on this subject. Why on earth have I written yet another book about it? And clearly, I have, I've worked out some kind of defense, I mean, hopefully without being too defensive. Let me, let me talk a little bit about what it is I wanted to do. And I'm not evading your question. I'll come back to it. So, so there's a huge literature in English, Arabic, Hebrew, other languages. My book, I'm delighted to say, is going to be translated into Chinese and into Italian and uh, Turkish. So, you know, those <laughs> readers in those countries too will get yet another book on this, on this subject. I wanted to do two or three different things that I didn't think had been done very much before. So we talked about the, the Balfour Declaration 2017 a centenary. I wanted to tell the story of a century. And it is literally a century now, of course, since that. So that's a, that's a framing device, if you like, that seems to me a legitimate one. The most important thing I wanted to do, I've already talked about, but I'll emphasize it because it matters to me a lot. I really wanted to try to tell the, the story of and from both sides. It's difficult to do. It's not often been attempted. Again, others will have to judge if I've managed to do that. Something else I wanted to do was to try to tell the story in a slightly different way from the way others have done it. 
It's worth saying, by the way, that there are very few books that tell the whole story of a century or more from the 1880s to the present day. Uh, surprisingly few. Uh, the books that do exist like that tend to be quite narrow and specialised. So, again, anybody who knows the subject will be familiar with the names. There's uh, Avi Schlein uh, wrote a, a book called The Iron Wall, which is essentially a diplomatic history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Benny Morris wrote a book, he's an important uh, historian, uh, wrote a book called Righteous Victims, which also tried to tell the entire story of the conflict. In my view, he didn't pay sufficient attention to the uh, Palestinian side uh, side of it. Um, I wanted to go beyond the familiar landmarks of wars and violence and diplomacy, peace initiatives and uprisings. And I wanted to try and get a sense of what this meant for people on both sides, in language and in culture. I discovered, for example, I didn't know this before, that people will be familiar with the famous, very famous and lovely and controversial song by Naomi Shemer, uh, Jerusalem of Gold, Yerushalayim uh, Shel Zahav. It's a song that came out just before the war of 1967 and became very much the, the Israeli anthem of that war. And it's a fascinating song, its content and so on. What I didn't know was that a few years later, uh, there was a song about Jerusalem in Arabic uh, by the Lebanese, uh, famous Lebanese uh, diva, Fairuz, who also sings beautifully and movingly about Jerusalem. What's fascinating, if you look at the lyrics of both the songs, both of them completely ignore the other people. There are no Arabs in Nomi Shema's Jerusalem of Gold, and there are no Jews in Fairuz's uh, Al-Quds al-Atika. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to go beyond these very, very familiar things, economic dependence, relations, Palestinians in Israel, and so on and so forth. Again, other people will judge if I've done that. The last thing I wanted to do, and this is very relevant to the question you just asked, and I'm taking a long time to answer, which is this. There is this Arab-Israeli conflict, Israel versus the Arab world, with the highlights of that, whether it's Sadat's visit to Jerusalem in 1977, or the Arab armies invading uh, Palestine in 1948, clandestine relationships over many years with Jordan, the current love affair flirtation between Israel, the Saudis and the Gulf states. My story stays in Palestine. It remains, it takes place in Jerusalem and in Nablus and in Tel Aviv and Haifa and Gaza, because I think that is, that is the heart of the conflict. It has, of course, regional implications that continue to be played out. So those are the things I tried to do. In terms of the wider Arab world, as I say, I haven't especially gone into that uh, it's a huge subject, it's fascinating, uh, but you won't learn much in my book about Israel, Israel's policy towards uh, Syria or, uh, you know, or, or Qatar's support for uh, Hamas and so on and so forth. The, the, these are all interesting and fascinating issues. There isn't room to go into all of them uh, in this. I wanted to stay in the borders of this contested country. Makes perfect sense, by the way. <laughs> uh, so maybe um, most generally uh, that we can ask, uh, what do you think? What do you see as the main keys to understanding this past century of uh, Zionist or Israeli Arab conflict? 
Well, I think the I think the the key that matters most to understanding the past, present, and future is that whether you like it or not, and there are people on both sides who don't like it at all. There are two peoples living in this land. There are now about uh, equal numbers, about six point three million. I'm talking about between the Mediterranean coast and the River Jordan, between the river and the sea, to use the that expression. There are about six point three million people uh, of each uh, in that country. Israel, of course, controls the whole place. Uh, the Palestinian Authority has uh, nominal control, but it's very nominal control over, you know, maybe the centre of Ramallah and uh, a couple of other a couple of other places. Um, the persistence of Israeli occupation of the West Bank is something that, if it is sustained, will uh, probably kill off, if it hasn't already, uh, the prospects for the two-state, a two-state solution to the conflict. In the absence of a two-state solution to the conflict, you have what is often, and I think correctly described as a one-state reality, um, which um, is clearly going to, already has affected the character of Israel as it likes to define itself as a Jewish and democratic state, uh, and will be transformed into something which is uh, more akin to, as critics often point out, to apartheid here in South Africa. There isn't an exact parallel, and it's important to maintain distinctions. Uh, I'm talking about the relations, the power relations, if you like, between Israel and the occupied territories. I'm not talking about what happens inside Israel itself, uh, where the Arab minority, the Palestinian minority, certainly face uh, discrimination, but they certainly have uh, quite a lot of rights as well. Uh, and uh, but the focus has to be, I think, on the, uh, the those occupied territories on the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza. Uh, and some way has to be found to uh, to to separate them. I think that is the logic of the long and painful history of the conflict. Now, many people believe that uh, is no longer possible. Um, and that, of course, is alarming because of the contentiousness and the injustices of the current situation. If you only focus on Gaza alone, you have two million people living in extremely difficult conditions under siege. Oh, not complete. There are you know, there are ways, but fundamentally, the generalization about the Gaza Strip is correct. Uh, living in the pe- people living in extremely difficult conditions under uh, under uh, undemocratic rulers of their own, uh, but uh, with a quality of life that is unacceptable uh, when it's in such, particularly when it's in such close proximity to um, a very very advanced and relatively prosperous. Uh, state next door. So the the century long story ends on a very very pessimistic note, where uh, yes, maybe there are still majorities on both sides who believe in that two state solution, but increasing numbers of people who don't believe it is possible, uh, and fear for uh, fear for the future. So 
the lesson, the overwhelming lesson, I think, of this story, to me certainly, and I don't think it's a particularly contentious thing to say, is that there are two peoples who live in this contested country. Uh, ways have to be found for them to live at least side by side uh, on a more uh, equal basis than is currently the case. And the Palestinians, their rights have been um, they have been overlooked and they have been ignored. And they, of course, have made uh, mistakes too. But the fundamental picture that emerges from this is that uh, a just solution needs to be found for the sake of the Palestinians, but also for the sake of uh, Israelis whose, um, whose own state and whose own lives will uh, not be well served. That's an objective view, not a partisan view, I like to think, will not be well served by the continuance of this uh, volatile and unjust status quo. Well, with Estonia, and we've taken too much of your time. Can you tell us, uh, in closing, what project or projects you are currently working on? I'm taking a little break after quite a lot of work. Uh, I've still got actually quite a lot of things to do, events to attend around uh, Around this, uh, around this, this book, um, literary festivals and conferences and so on. Um, I have an, I have a new project that I'm doing at uh, the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics, where I'm a, a visiting uh, a visiting fellow. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, relations between Israel and the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's a subject of great interest at the moment, and of course, it has has a very interesting. Backstory. These relationships go back quite a long way. Some of them are clandestine, but there's actually quite a lot that we do know. And I think it's my interest in it. I think is is linked to the long backstory of this idea, and this is all set out in the book in the in the Zionist movement, going back to really the very beginnings, or to 1918 at least, when the Zionist leadership, Chaim Weizmann, famously met the Emir Faisal. <laughs> the son of the Sharif Hussein of Mecca, this idea that there could be an agreement between the Zionist movement and the wider Arab world. Uh, and the only snag with that, of course, was then as now, that it ignored the little local difficulty of the Arabs who lived in the country, which the Zionists aspired to turn into their homeland. So there's both continuity and change in my, uh, in my new research project. Very timely. Ian Black, thank you for being on the show today and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.